Welcome to Podagogies, a learning and teaching podcast. I'm Curtis Maloli. And I'm Chelsea Jones. We're recording today from our homes in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, on Treaty 13 territory of the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation, and also the Dish with One Spoon territory. This podcast is hosted at Ryerson University, which is currently being referred to by many as X University in support of the Indigenous students, staff, faculty, and community members who for many years have been calling for the removal of a statue from campus. This was a statue of Egerton Ryerson, a man who was an instrumental architect of the Indian residential school system in this country, a system that continues to have devastating impacts on First Nations, Métis and Inuit peoples. In June of 2021, protesters toppled the statue and hundreds of Indigenous and non-Indigenous faculty and staff signed open letters demanding that the university change its name. Until we know the new name, we'll be calling it X University. It has been an incredibly distressing time for Indigenous peoples in Canada, as the mass graves of many hundreds of children have been discovered at several different residential school sites, including 215 children at just one site in Kamloops, British Columbia. Today, we will be speaking about the theme of distress in our pedagogy and how we handle and address distress with our students in the era of social crisis. Joining us today is Dr. Tobin LeBlanc Haley, a mad critical political economist and critical disability studies scholar, also an assistant professor teaching in the Department of Sociology at X University and the host of a TV show in New Brunswick called the New Brunswick Debrief. Dr. Haley is joining us from Fredericton. Also with us today is Dr. Fadi Shenouda, who joins us from Toronto. Dr. Shenouda is an assistant professor at the Pauline Jewett Institute of Women's and Gender Studies at Carleton University in Ottawa on the unceded territory of the Algonquin Nation. Both have extensive background in teaching in the critical fields of MAD and disability studies and have been rethinking how to deal with moments of crisis and recovery in the university classroom. They say that in an era of crisis where our teaching and learning strategies are shaped by what's going on in the world, we need to start thinking about distress in the classroom differently. I'll give you each a chance to say hello. Welcome, Dr. Haley. Thank you. It's so nice to touch base with folks in Toronto and to see Dr. Shanuda as well. I'm weathering COVID in my hometown of Fredericton, New Brunswick, on the stolen land of the Wolliftigwe. And welcome, Dr. Shanuda. Thank you so much for having me. It's nice to see you all. So just to get started, uh, as Chelsea said in the introduction, both of your scholarship and, and teaching work focuses on themes of distress in different kinds of ways. You know, I thought maybe we could start by having each of you share a bit about, you know, what distress means for you in the context of your work. Uh, Tobin, maybe we'll start with you. Yeah, thanks so much. I mean, in the context of my work, distress has been taken up in relation to depathologizing experiences of distress and reimagining responses to distress and rethinking how people's experiences are labeled as distressed and how people's engagements in the world that are sometimes read as distressing or as a, as a distress response aren't necessarily um, that and that are, are read through that lens um, in, a, in, in, in a really pathologizing way in relation to sort of the side disciplines. But in, in the current moment, 
how I've been sort of trying to think about this is that the university has always been a distressing place for mad and disabled and racialized and indigenous and queer folk. It's always been a space of exclusion, a space where our, thinking of myself as a mad woman, our bodies and our experiences um, have been the subject of study. Right? And so entering into that space has always been distressing, where the minds and bodies of structurally marginalized communities are not anticipated in the classroom. That is a distressing experience. Like living in and around being in the university is distressing. So it's always been a distressing space, a space where distress is produced and a space where distress is studied often in really problematic ways, but increasingly in, in ways that, that resist that pathologization. Um, and then sort of we live through the crises of the, of the contemporary moment. You know, we, we cannot think of the university as a, like a necessarily a safe space to think about and, and process these moments of distress, but rather as a site where distress is produced. It's really interesting to me the way you frame that in terms of um, whose experiences are anticipated by the institution. And I saw, as you said, that Fady was uh, nodding enthusiastically. Uh, Fady, is it a similar lens that you're thinking of as you think of distress? Absolutely. I mean, I think Tobin talks about the university as an exclusionary place, and I've always called a project of exclusion, right? From the point of application to all the way until you get up into like tertiary education, where we see less and less different body minds. And so the reason why I think I use the word distress versus, for example, mental health versus, for example, madness is because I think it's more globally understood. It is more representative of what people experience around the world uh, that interconnects with the, you know, social, political, economic conditions of our current lives. And so distress is a more helpful framework for understanding how someone's life can go from being, you know, good to being very, very bad. Um, and the university is a site where lots of different things are converging, right? Um, one is not only entering a new community, but they're also being tested and studied and participating in new relationships and um, engaging in like a form of transformation. And like Tobin was saying, a whole bunch of us are not considered, are not imagined in those spaces. And how can that not be distressing? The nice thing is that we know that there is a whole bunch of people constantly pushing back. You know, the toppling of the statue in and of itself is evidence of that. There's always people pushing back and trying to reconstruct and recreate the institution. So one of the things that we're thinking about in this current moment is something that you both have talked about in the past, and that is that it's important to unpack the history of the institution that you're part of. And as you're saying, this seems particularly important right now as Indigenous students and faculty sort of call for Ryerson to change its name. So what I really want to know is both of you have just talked about how the university is a site where distress is produced. And so how do we support students in understanding like the history of that production and the lineage of that production? So I teach qualitative research methods. In my view, research methods is one of the key sites where students can be invited into conversations about the history of the university, but about the history of knowledge production more broadly. And I mean, you can't really have those conversations 
um, separate from each other in the university classroom. Because what we're teaching them in research methods is how to produce knowledge and what kind of knowledge is considered to be legitimate and who's considered to be a knowledge producer and who's considered to be like, like a data point, right? So with qualitative research methods, I think it provides a real opportunity to invite students to consider the history of knowledge production. And I start with, because I'm a bad scholar and you know I feel like in these spaces, it's good to start with what you know and be vulnerable and be open to critique. I usually start that with a discussion of quote unquote scientific, scientific is in quotes, racism and the role of scientific racism in imperialism and colonialism and the role of knowledge producers in pushing that forward. We think about the notes that were sent back from merchants and traders and um, you know, army officials back to, to the seat of empire in, in Britain who would then write sort of these armchair fictitious accounts of what the world that was being colonized looked like and what the people who lived there were like and and what their um, experiences were like and and these really fictitious and damaging and racist accounts of what was happening to justify these processes of colonialism that's a form of knowledge production it became so embedded and so essential to the project of colonialism and imperialism. And so I, I usually start there to show students that now it's not just an exercise in thinking about, you know, interesting ideas and, and epistemology and methodology aren't just like cool, you know, intellectual exercises, but these are, are often the issues of life and death and theft uh, of land and bodies, and that we have to have those conversations. Um, if we're going to talk about what it means to do research and what it means to be in an institution. So that's usually where I start. That's, I think that's so great because you're getting students to do a kind of metacognitive work as they're thinking through the ways that they're engaging with knowledge in your classroom in that way. I love that, that thinking through of, of methodology. Fadi, I wonder um, from your perspective, on the one hand, we can be unpacking knowledge production. And on the other hand, too, there's so much discourse at the university around supporting, and you used the word earlier, like student mental health. But again, of course, this is also exists within this, you know, systematic production of some kinds of norms. What, what are your thoughts about the ways that we think about mental health at universities? To kind of answer both Chelsea's question and your question in the same answer, I, I'm thinking that history is really important, like a socio-historical perspective is really important. And so thinking about the university as an institution is almost a millennia right? Years old, like it's 900 years old, according to Rosie Berdotti, as like a system, it's been around for an incredibly long time. Institutions in Canada, for example, the University of Toronto is older than the country that it's in. And if you look at, for example, Katie Albrecht's work, and her kind of archival research into what was there before the university, we learned that in fact, mad women, there was an asylum filled with mad women at the University of Toronto, that they then bulldozed in order to put up another building, one that could then be occupied by, you know, the bastion of reason, according to Price, you know, that's, that's what Margaret Price calls universities, the bastions of reason. So they needed to literally rip away madness in order to create the university. And I feel like that's still where we are, right? It's just a different form. It's just a different style. It's just a different methodology, right? We're still trying to push out remove different ways of thinking and being in the university in order to ensure some kind of rigor or academic integrity or other fancy words that really just mean uh, the same, the status quo, the social script. I think for me, it, it would be really important to, to for students to learn about the histories of their institutions, right? That 
mad people weren't allowed there, that disabled people weren't allowed in school, that there were raids on, on queer people, that the only way queer people were allowed to come back was to do psychiatrization, that, that racialized people have only been allowed for a certain amount of time, and that time has often been filled with experiences of, you know, really discriminatory experiences. You know, women not being allowed in, in Hart House up until the 1970s. And the fact that there weren't bathrooms for women in universities, right? And so, of course, there's a pay gap. Like, you know what I mean? If there wasn't a place for people to go to the bathroom. And, you know, you can extrapolate from there why we are currently in this moment where we're still trying to, you know, in- include or create further diversity. You know, I'm thinking about all of the things that you're saying about looking back at the history or the lineage of the institution that we're in, uh, an institution that produces distress on many levels and has for a long time. But I'm wondering, you know, what do you say to listeners who might hear this podcast and think, yeah, but I, you know, I don't teach a history class or we don't talk about history in my discipline. I don't have time for this. My students, you know, they want something else. They don't want to learn this. Do you think that there's a place for looking back and tracing this kind of history in, in a classroom that wouldn't normally do that? Yes, absolutely. There has to be room or space. And I'm not saying an entire course, but if you're a mathematician, you need to talk about the history of math, how women were treated, right? You need to talk about statistics as the governing force of how we came up with eugenics. I guess my point is that in every field of study, colonialism, racism, ableism, Satanism, they all are contributing to these systems. And if your students don't know that, it's an unfortunate loss. And there are people in your field, absolutely, doing this work. And if they're not, then maybe it's time for you to take up the mantle and do some of this kind of historical analysis. Robin, do you have anything you want to add to that? And I think about when Fady said math and like the history of mathematics and, and the role of math and statistics and eugenics, you know, as someone who, who faced like a lot of, <laughs> had a really difficult relationship with math and who was raised at a time when sort of um, like STEM was the the only like way forward, the only valuable, you know, educational pathway, the only way to like not live in poverty in New Brunswick. This was often uh, the message that was put forward. You know, I, I think about the moments of exclusion, but I also think about all of the knowledge theft in these different fields, you know, the voices of people whose contributions we don't know about. And the the work of women and racialized folk who weren't on the papers and who weren't given the positions at the institution, but whose knowledge has been essential to the the current sort of discoveries in in different fields. I really think uh, I really think that is a an important focal point as well. Whose voices didn't make it onto the plaques? Whose contributions were excluded? And I think of you know everything from Henrietta Lacks to the film Hidden Figures, you know, where these Black women, like what are the other voices and other minds and other contributors that have been excluded from from different fields, including our own. I'm not saying like critical disability studies, I'm sure is is just as guilty. Well, speaking from a place of critical disability studies, one thing that I've noticed about our conversation so far is that, 
you know, we are talking about mad studies and we're talking about madness. And I wonder, you know, if we might be at a point in the conversation where there are some listeners who are thinking, okay, but what is madness in relation to mental health? Or maybe I'm more familiar with conversations about mental health than I am about this thing, madness. Could you, both of you, take a minute just to sort of catch us up on what we mean by madness when we have this conversation and what it means to talk about madness in the classroom or possibly distress in the classroom instead of talking about mental health? So it's funny you said that I just pulled up a paper that I just finished writing, <laughs> but that's this. And, you know, we can think about mad and madness as, as terms that have been sort of reclaimed and strategically deployed, um, an international movement to dismantle racist, colonial, and heterosexist forms of, of psychiatric hegemony and sanism. You know, if we want to think about mad, the adjective, we can think about it as like a political identity for people with experiences of sort of psychomedical pathologization or like associated oppressions. And we can think about madness as like mad sibling noun to describe like a range of emotional, psychic and spiritual experiences and behaviors that have been long considered abnormal or disordered put those in quotation marks, experiences that prompt sort of interventions from the side disciplines in these really like damaging ways. The terms like mad and madness, which have a long history that I, I will not invite into this podcast because it could go on forever. But, uh, you know, like who is considered mad and what experiences are framed as madness from the outside change across sort of a time and space. But the experiences of psychopathologization are sort of the, the shared moment among, among mad folk. I think if we want to you know, distinguish between madness and mental health, I think one of the easiest ways to do that is that one of them is individual and the other one is social. One of them self-responsibilizes the issue of mental health or the, or the issue of difference in general, versus the other one takes it as a kind of social responsibility. Everyone is involved in the process. Um, and not just people, but, you know, uh, non-humans and more than human things, right? So like animals, the dust in the air, uh, the sounds that are traveling through the, the air, all those kinds of things, uh, the animals that may be present, etc. And so I think madness makes it kind of everyone's responsibility, what is happening in the classroom, right? Access is traversed. It's a process that is produced alongside other humans and non-human things. And so how that looks in my classroom, for example, is that besides the content warning at the beginning, uh, an access check-in right at the front where students, I'm going to tell students, you know, what kind of things I'm going to be talking about today. They can tell me what they would like to avoid. Disruption of any type is in fact a welcome process. A lot of our scholar friends, Kelly Fritch, Eliza Chandler, they write about desiring the disruption that disability brings. And I think we can extend that to the disruption that madness brings. We want our students to be experiencing their education to the fullest. I remember during one of my PhD interviews, one of the students told me, I want to cry in class, but I feel like if I do, I would be a bad student. Because Crying is not a professional activity. One does not cry when they're learning. And that only comes because the space, again, we're going to talk about history here, 
is one that has been male and one that has been sane. Tobin earlier mentioned the armchair, like the armchair anthropologists, right? They were studying people 6,000, 7,000 kilometers away, and they had no emotional connection. But students are studying their histories. They're studying their community's history. So how can they not have an emotional response? So do you make space for crying in your classroom as an appropriate way to learn, right? Is like one way I would say, like, how can we think about madness as something that can activate uh, the space in a completely different way? It's funny, I work uh, obviously at a, at a teaching center and um, part of the work I do and part of my role, you know, is to be supporting curricular development and, you know, having uh, professors think about, and I'm using this terminology purposefully, you know, what their outcomes are for the course. Um, and, you know, it's important, I think, to think through, like, what do I hope my students will be able to do when they take my course? Um, but of course, on the flip side of that, and, and listening to what you're saying, you know, one of the real troubles with that is that it, it positions the student as being put into a, a real cookie cutter and, you know, having to achieve very, very limited and specific things that are, you know, not really attached to who they are and what they bring and what their experiences are, because every student in our class is being transformed and having an experience in ways that we could never predict before they arrive there. So I wonder if, you know, as I'm listening to you, do either of you have examples of ways that, you know, because Fadi, you said um, disruption is a welcome process. Are there ways to build that into our pedagogy where we create these spaces for disruption as an essential part of the learning process? I, I know it's an abstract question, but do either of you have kind of specific examples you could share with our listeners? I just think one of the ways of doing it is to actually invite it into the classroom, make it, acknowledge it as something that you want students to do. And, and you know, my classes have been disrupted in, in a variety of ways, right? It's been students crying. <laughs> it's been the fire alarm, right? But it's also been students calling me out on certain things that are either missing in my analysis, uh, a history that wasn't there, or a or a topic that we didn't discuss fully or an activity that was clearly inaccessible. And these were moments where we were, you know, the hierarchy was totally removed. It was in fact flipped, right? Or flattened or however you want to look at it. But there was an opportunity for in fact, all of us to be doing some learning in the process. What we're saying by welcoming disruption is like to allow a flexibility in your classroom, to allow space and time for things to go wrong because in fact, that's where some whole bunch of learning for everyone is gonna happen. And just to build on, on that, I think something that's been really interesting about, interesting, something that's been very revealing <laughs> about teaching in the context of, of the pandemic is that for the first time that I can remember, even in disability studies courses, even when I was teaching disability studies courses, like to take ownership and responsibility for that, for reproducing Sanism in my own course as a mad woman, but of course, someone who's part of the academy, for the first time, everybody threw their hands up and was like, distress is going to be in my classroom. This is going to be a place where students are experiencing distress, where I, as a professor, am experiencing distress, where my graders and my teaching assistants are experiencing distress. We are moving through distress together, right? And it was, it was the first time that I can remember or that was expected and anticipated and where we designed our course I mean, by the time we got to whatever, like the third semester of teaching in COVID, where we were designing our courses in a way that anticipated just a completely frayed student, fragmented student experience. And it's interesting to me because what that means is for the first time that I can remember, we as faculty were allowed and were expected to create space for the cracks 
and the structural inequality and the violences of the world sort of condition what was happening in our classroom. And never before, like any other time, we've had to push and, and look, it wasn't done perfectly. We've had to push and demand and ask as critical scholars, as critical disability scholars, as mad scholars, I'm a, I'm a white settler, but I'm, I'm sure that, um, you know, indigenous and racialized folk are listening to this and, and are saying, yes, yes, us too, have had to push for that. And this is the first time that we've really seen it as anticipated and required of us and that the institution asks us to do it. And, and this isn't just about ex-universities, it's about all universities. I don't think we were provided with enough supports. I don't think we were provided with enough training. I don't think that we were ready um, for what that required of us as like workers, right? We, like, we weren't supported as workers in that environment, but it really was the first time that I can remember where we were allowed to let distress condition the classroom. We recognize we were all experiencing distress together in different ways. And that's always true. It's always true, right? Like we live in like racist, ableist, sanist, gendered, queerphobic capitalism. Like, of course, we're all experiencing distress all the time. This is the first time we were expected to bring it into and allow it to condition our pedagogy. And it was such a different teaching experience where I was like, oh, it's not just like me and my critical peeps, like hanging out, trying to make this work everybody was being asked to do it. Yeah, I really know what you mean in terms of having to move online and having to start teaching in pandemic conditions where everything is just different and the world is sort of upended and our pedagogy can't remain the same. And so we have to make room for new ways of being in the world with students. And I think that what you're saying, Tobin, you know, this life-changing world event, it changes the way we approach our classrooms. It changes how we think about pedagogy. It changes our understandings of what it means to be distressed and to have sort of an affective element in the classroom. And for many people, that shift in thinking maybe began um, around pandemic time, began with that sort of big change. But for the two of you, I'm wondering, like, what brought you to thinking about distress in the classroom in these ways. I share a lot of the pedagogical principles that you're describing. And I know that we're sort of, we run in the same groups and we're talking about these things from time to time. And one thing that I uh, kind of struggle with is that making room for these affective spaces or thinking about accessibility in a very expansive way that allows for madness in the classroom and that allows for distressed ways of being to manifest in the classroom, that's a tricky thing when you're pressured maybe by the institution to come up with a few clear-cut learning goals for your classroom or whatever. So how did you come up with this kind of expansive pedagogical approach? What, what led you both here? Tobin, I'll start with you if that works. Sure. I mean, certainly like as a mad woman who spent way too much time in post-secondary institutions, just never being at home, never feeling comfortable, always trying to like hide parts of the self, always trying to like, you know, push in a way that presented like a sane personality, like a sane way of engaging, a, a rational way, and not allowing sort of the creativity of like a, like a mad existence to, to come into my work until much, 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 much later. And then having to play catch up, right? Like having to be like, oh, okay, this whole part of me like wasn't explored and wasn't engaged with. 
and wasn't allowed to flourish and then having to sort of like allow that to happen and often feeling like an adolescent as an adult and, and an academic in that part of my thinking and that part of my engagement with the world. And so, you know, and, and that's so unjust, right? That's, that's such an unjust thing to happen, and, you know, and I'm extraordinarily privileged and that's happening to me who can walk into a, a room and be read most of the time, depending, uh, as sane. Yeah, so, so from there and then also from watching students much more talented and creative and aware students really rub up against it and and call it out and and learning from that in the classroom wanting to create a classroom that I didn't have not that I'm doing that I'm not I'm not saying that I'm accomplishing that at all but sort of trying to create little spaces of what like I had hoped to what I think I would have benefited from yeah it's at the heart of what you're trying to accomplish Sure, but I'm not saying that I'm doing it well. <laughs> Every way, yeah, fair <laughs> enough, fair enough. We're all okay, trying. <laughs> it's a contested and like messy process. <laughs> um, but like, you know, like trying to have sort of like radically accessible spaces where students don't have to perform some kind of like medicalized notion of distress in order to get some kind of accommodations. Mm. To have some, like a, a different assignment than the one that I had imagined. And Fady, how about for you? I mean, I think it's very similar for me, you know, as a disabled person diagnosed very, very young uh, with a learning disability and essentially told that I would never get to be uh, a university student and never get to experience university and, and then experiencing it and realizing that the problem was not me, but was in fact every system, right, or so many of the systems in this place that required me to uh, jump through a whole bunch of hurdles in order to access my learning When I got the chance to then construct a classroom where I was in charge, I looked to so many of the people whose classrooms I thought were the most successful and I emulated them. And then I practiced and I experimented and alongside many of you here, you know, talked with my colleagues about how to do this better and, you know, read a whole bunch uh, about how to do this and then, you know, wrote a little bit too. So it was a process of trying to ensure that someone like me in the future was going to feel comfortable in my classroom. And, and, and maybe one thing I'll add too is like part of this is also the fact that so much of the furniture in our classrooms are not comfortable. It's not what I would like to be sitting in when I'm learning. And there's something about acknowledging that for students, you know, the chairs that they're sitting in, the desk that they're sitting, the technology that they're using, even the way that we're arranged around each other is not conducive to that. So how can we rearrange the classroom to even think about it as a different space? It's really interesting speaking to you both. This is a, you know, a lens that I have some familiarity with, but obviously not a ton. Tobin, I really appreciated how you highlighted the way that, you know, COVID has put us in a place where we could start to appreciate and think through from the get-go our classrooms as a place that needed to anticipate a process that is not perfect from the beginning. And Beatty, also, you're, you're highlighting so many of the ways, like even something like a classroom space and, and the chair that has been in there. Um, it's not the first thing most of us think about because we're focused on our expertise and the things that we are trained in. So I really appreciate this lens. There's a lot here, I think, for our listeners to think about and to reflect on in terms of the ways that we can be flexible with our students um, beyond, you know, two options in their essay topic or something like that. So really, really appreciate this conversation. Thank you both so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Thank you. 
And also a big thank you to the people behind the scenes who produced this episode with us, production support specialist Chloe Hazard and instructional technologist Sally Goldberg-Powell. And we want to thank the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching for funding this podcast. 